Good evening, everyone. Welcome tonight. I'm glad that we can be together. Mount Hermon is a very special place for me. My grandmother was the cook here when I was a kid. And so 45 years ago here, I was uh, working in the kitchen that summer. I've lived a lot of life since then. But uh, I, I'm privileged to speak in many different places. This is home for me. And so it's always a high privilege to be here with you. Very much looking forward to the week. If you don't know me, uh, you can know me just a little bit by 4321. I have four hobbies, hiking, skiing, riding, photography. Three children and grandchildren. They're grown children with spouses and three grandkids, uh, one of whom, a nine-month-old, began walking today. So that's super exciting. Two jobs. I teach uh, and lead Bethany Community Church in Seattle, and I also work with Torchbearers Missionary Fellowship, a coalition of 27 Bible schools, and one wife uh, who's back there in the back. <laughs> Uh, and w in September for us, 40 years we'll be married. So that's, we're super excited about that as well. And that is a picture of my wife there. That's Donna. Uh, and uh, our theme for Ezekiel this week really is the theme of turning. We're going to be talking quite a bit about turning. And this picture is taken when my wife and I were privileged during my sabbatical to do a hike through the Alps. And there's a picture of us being lost and Donna asking directions in Italy of a cyclist, and it necessitated for us a, a turning around, basically. We were going the wrong direction. We need to stop and turn around. And Ezekiel is a book about turning around over and over again, because we know this. Christ is our life, but the reality is I need to turn to Christ again and again and again, not just once when I received Christ, but all throughout life, a continually turning to Christ, turning away from things that are distracting me, things that are paralyzing me, things that are enslaving me, turning toward Christ, you do it over and over again, and I will not turn unless I'm going to do the hard thing. Turning is difficult. I'm not going to turn unless I'm going to do the hard thing. Uh, a second illustration of this, of this kind of principle of doing the hard thing, my wife and I are just beginning a ministry in our church, a rites of passage ministry, actually, for people of any age who are leaving one season of life, going into another. We took five people in their 30s out backpacking um, for fasting and solitude, a, a few weeks ago now, and uh, everyone had set their stuff up, and then, if you've ever been backpacking, many of you have experienced this. You wake up about one in the morning, and you need to pee. Who's had this happen when you're out backpacking? You need to pee. Well, uh, it, was, it was 30 out. It had snowed the night before. It was ice cold. You're warm in your bag, and you want to get out because be comfortable once you pee, but you actually don't want to get out because you're already comfortable in your discomfort. If that, does that make sense? Like I've made peace with my discomfort of holding it in. I don't want to get out, but I'm not sleeping. And I think if I get out and have this short-term discomfort, then indeed I'll be able to get back in the bag. I'll get warm again some hour. Then I'll fall asleep because I'll have face relief. So here's the thing. Here, this kind of is the way it works to the book of Ezekiel. Face the pain that will lead to relief or avoid the pain and continue to suffer. Those are choices. And so you're like this, I wish I had to sign up for a different week. This is a bummer. <laughs> but there's no third option, unfortunately. You can't end the suffering without more suffering. But if you're going to suffer the right way, you find relief. And this, as we all know, is the story of the Christian life, and particularly the story of the prophets and Israel over and over again. And in a huge way, this is a story in the book of Ezekiel. We won't look at the book verse by verse, obviously. It's a gigantic book. But a few themes, Right? And so the prophets ask questions about two important realities that all of us face, both as individuals and as communities. 
the realities of disruption and dissonance. Disruption, like I'm not where I want to be. Dissonance, there's a distance between where I am, where I want to be. Disruption, something's happened in my life. There's a medical report, it's cancer. Our company's downsizing. I'm out of work. There's unemployment, there's infidelity. Disruption, dissonance, these are things. And then we ask questions, all of us do. Why are we suffering? And, and how should we respond to our disruption and dissonance? And what resides on the far side of disruption and dissonance? And what does all of this disruption and dissonance say about the character of an ostensibly, ostensibly good God? If life is hard, is God angry? Is God distant? Is God passive? What do we, what do we learn about God because of the reality of suffering? Those are the things that we get to talk about uh, over our next few evenings together. So I'm going to begin this evening by setting a little bit of a context for you, telling a little bit about Ezekiel. I love that the Bible's history, and Ezekiel is, there's context in Ezekiel, right? So Ezekiel appears on the scene at a very specific time and place. This is what he says, verse 1 of 1, the 30th year, the fourth month, the fifth day of the month. So many believe this is what Ezekiel is saying. I was 30 years old when my first prophecy came to me. So that means that he was born, we do the math from history. He was born in 622 BC, had a vision in 592. And, and when he had a vision in 592, Ezekiel is by the river Chebar, which is in Babylon, where Ezekiel has been carried away into captivity. So Ezekiel was born into the line of priests. He was supposed to be a priest in Jerusalem. And instead of being a priest in Jerusalem, he's now been displaced, right? He's in not Jerusalem where he wants to be, but Babylon where he doesn't want to be. And he's not doing priest work that he wants to do. He's called to prophetic work that he doesn't want to do. Like, so he's not where he wants to be, and he's not doing what he wants to do, and everyone around him is suffering. Does that sound familiar? I mean, this is all of our stories at various times, right? So uh, when, when he's by this river, what you find is, if you've ever seen uh, the musical of the movie Godspell, there's a beautiful song in Godspell called On the Willows, and, and it's, it's uh, On the Willows, we hung our harps, it's Psalm 137, we hung our harps on the willows, we, Israel, are captive in Babylon, we hung our harps, we don't want to sing in Babylon, we're bummed. And then, this is what it says in the song, and Psalm 137, uh, our tormentors tormented us saying, hey, come on, sing us the songs of Zion. Like, it would be like Canada, hauling all of us off to the north, and then, you know, we're up there in hockey town or whatever, and, and, uh, they're, and they're like this, yeah, we want to hear the national anthem. Come on, how about, let's hear God bless America. Let's, let's uh, have a little study of the constitution of the country you don't have anymore. They're mocking. So the tormentors are mocking them by the river. Look at this, you've lost your land, You've lost your freedom, you've lost your national identity, you've lost your financial security, you've bottomed out, it's a time of disorder, a time of dissonance, and that's when Ezekiel has a vision and begins his ministry. So I'm just going to ask the question at the outset, does disruption and dissonance apply to our time and place? Absolutely, of course it does. Maybe more than any time in my lifetime. In the same way that Israel was divided as a nation, our nation is divided. <clears throat> Black, white, left, right, rich, poor. 1%, 99%. God's church is divided. Emergent, traditional, orthodox, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, progressive, open and affirming, closed and denying. I, uh, like 11 a.m. Sunday is kind of still the most segregated hour. And beyond these elements, there's, there's signs of personal 
loss and disorder as well. In our church, when people come forward for prayer, we kind of try and keep track of what people are requesting prayer for. And overwhelmingly, in people between the age of 20 and 35, which is a big chunk of our congregation, anxiety and fear are like the presenting issues. People are anxious, afraid, and closer, lonely, right? And you take that and you expand that out on a national level. What do we see? Suicide rates, way up. Anxiety, depression, gun violence, child hunger, the number of people within $400 of the end of the line. And that doesn't even mention fires in Santa Rosa, Paradise, water in Flint, Michigan, groundwater in Pennsylvania. And if we're sitting here thinking, well, these aren't our problems. You know, we know Christ. We have good jobs, we pray, we vote for good values. If we think these are not our problems, that's evidence of the problem too. <laughs> As we'll see in a moment, uh, like a moment being Wednesday, right? We'll get into that in Ezekiel uh, <laughs> chapter 16. So here's the deal. Disorder and dissonance, whether it's cultural, national, ch church-wide, familial, or personal, disorder and dissonance are intended by God to, to shake us awake kind of shake, wake us up, right? And the world is right now more than ever filled with kind of wrong-headed diagnoses about all of these problems. Everyone knows there's problems, but our solutions often only serve to deepen our problems. So what's needed from all of us for our world that God loves so much, what's needed is for us to be people of wisdom. And what God did when there was a need for people of wisdom, God raised up prophets, right? To reveal... A, the cause of present or coming disorder and dissonance, and B, you know, what turns need to be made so that we could become people of hope once again and healing. So today's text, here's what we're going to discover in today's text. By the way, uh, the, the, the picture there is just another, it's like a, a, a dis disruption and dissonance in this, this journey that my wife and I had. Uh, uh, we ended up in Italy in August, and all the research I had done had said, oh, you'll have no trouble finding a room anywhere. I mean, it's going to be easy. And we get there. The, the guy who wrote the book was in August and October. And it's no problem in October. But in August, all Italians take August off, and they go stay in each other's houses, apparently, because there was literally no vacancy anywhere. And so we find ourselves you know, hiking all day to this town, and then we couldn't find a place to stay. That's disruptive. That's dissonant. But it's, it's just an illustration, right? And so it kind of wakes you up. Okay, what are we going to do? And, and the question here is three questions. What, what do we, like, how do we turn? And there's three turnings that we're going to see. So we go to the next slide here. These are the things that we look at this evening. Three turns we need to take. We need to turn to the Spirit. We need to turn to courage. We need to turn to truth. So let's look at the text here. Begin with this first turn. All of us are called to turn to the Spirit. If we're going to be people who are part of the solution rather than part of the problem, it begins by turning to the Spirit. So we're in Ezekiel, and we're in chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2. And so uh, he, this messenger coming to Ezekiel, says to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. So we're going to stop right there. Just for a minute, I want you to notice the order here of what God is saying to Ezekiel. First of all, God says to Ezekiel, stand up. And then it, the text says, like sequentially, the text says, then the spirit fills him and sets him on his feet. Isn't that interesting? So uh, Psalm 
Ezekiel, with all of Israel, is sitting by the rivers of Babylon. They're weeping. They're bummed. So Ezekiel is part of this suffering group of people. He's captive. He's afraid. He's experienced loss. The life has been sucked out of him. It would be very easy in that moment to say, I'm stressed. I need a cocoon right now. I want to withdraw. And then God comes along. And what does God say to the man who is himself suffering? What does God say to the man who is suffering? He says, bam, stand up. Listen, I know you're in the midst of suffering and loss and disorder. I know it. Just like everyone else, Ezekiel. But I'm going to ask you right in the midst of your own suffering to become part of the solution. Ezekiel, look around. Everyone's sitting. I'm asking you, Ezekiel, stand up. You, Ezekiel, have what you need to make a difference because you have the Spirit. That's what happens in the very next verse. And by the way, so do you. So, look, to be the people that we're called to be, we need to get over our preoccupation with our own problems. And we need to get over this mindset that would say this, hey, as soon as I fix myself, then I'm going to serve and bless our broken world. No, no. service begins now. Why? Because God has said to us, stand up. I've given you everything you need. All things pertaining to life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Blessed with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Adopted into God's family, forever loved, forever empowered, Romans 8, 9, filled with the Spirit. You have everything you need to live the life which created. Don't sit down any longer and wait. I have something for you to do. And my hope and prayer is that by the end of the week, all of us have a next step to take when we go home to make a difference in the world. So um, there have always been, in every culture of disarray, there have always been a few people who stood up, but only a few which is very interesting. And often, those few who stood up, uh, when they stood up in the midst of other Christ followers not standing up, they were treated with scorn, actually. Bonhoeffer stood up against the idols of nationalism in Germany. Uh, he was a pastor, and he said, look, this, this unbridled loyalty to this, to this leader is dangerous. He stood up against the idol of nationalism. St. Francis stood up against the idols of religious institutionalism, particularly the idols of materialism among priests and religious leaders and all the pride and compromise that came with that. He stood up against that. He paid a price for standing up. There's a woman, uh, Eddie Hellison, Jewish woman, Dutch Jew executed at the age of 29 in Auschwitz. Her diary reveals that she stood against rage and fear and as, as she begins to be aware of what's going on all around her, because she's seeing Jewish friends disappear, right? They're, like, they're just literally disappearing. She'll get up and she'll go to class. Where's my professor? Oh, uh, he's, the police came last night and he's, he's gone. Her neighbor's gone. Like, oh, just, just having all around her. And so uh, she's been kind of living this, you know, bohemian lifestyle. Kind of, I mean, she would have fit well in San Francisco in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or now. It, like, <laughs> she's just kind of living this kind of, Self-centered, indulgent kind of lifestyle. I mean, a nice person, but uh, when this begins to happen, something awakens in her. And I love her language in her diary. This is what she says. She says, instead of, instead of living an accidental life, I feel deep down within myself that I have grown mature enough enough, excuse me, grown mature enough to accept my destiny. I've matured enough to assume my destiny and cease living an accidental passive life. I will no longer be carried by the winds of the culture, but will stand against the culture 
and be a person of hope. Don't you love that? 29 years old. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Uh, now, what does all this have to do with the Bible? Well, of course, in Romans 12, what does Paul say to us? He says, look, uh, J.B. Phillips' translation, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't, like if you live passively, there's a ditch into which you will fall. Like there's a, there's a powerful stream in our culture of, of materialism, of centralism, of nationalism, of individualism. And if you live passively, you're just going to be swept into those streams. Don't do that. Stand up against the prevailing streams. That's the first thing Ezekiel has to do, right? So in Romans 12, we're told, look, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But in order to stand against kind of that overwhelmingly powerful river that is the culture, in order to stand, you need a power you don't have. So if you go back and you look at Ezekiel chapter 2, remember? Uh, God says to Ezekiel, stand on your feet, and the Spirit entered me and empowered me and set me on my feet. So like, I'm told to do something, but I'm not just told to do something by God, I'm empowered to do something by God. And I just want you to know, Ezekiel was empowered for his calling by the Holy Spirit, and by the way, so are you right? So Romans 8, verse 9, it articulates this pretty clearly. Everyone who has Christ has the Spirit. So like when you came to Christ, you received everything that you need to live the life for which you created. However, it's one thing to have the Spirit, and it's another thing to allow that same Spirit to govern our choices day by day, moment by moment, so that along with Eddie in, in Amsterdam, we begin to live an intentional life rather than an accidental life. We stand up against the forces of culture rather than being swept along by the forces of culture. Like the only way that we can do that is by being empowered by the Holy Spirit because the river is strong of attachments to material comfort and prestige and power and place and prosperity and these things. We don't even know it. We're hanging on to these things, and they become our undoing. And so the thing is, uh, during, during Ezekiel's day, Ezekiel needs to stand up and for the people name the idols, and he's empowered to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, and so are we. But it begins with us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to live the life for which we're created. When the Spirit empowers you, here's the deal. When the Spirit empowers you, you stand up. Like that's just, a, it's just what happens when the Spirit is overwhelming you because we're told, right, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18, look, don't get drunk with wine, but what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so again, you're given like two choices, not a third choice. Like you can yield, you're going to yield your life to an outside force of some sort. So... Like, don't self-medicate, but instead, yield your life to the power of the Holy Spirit. Not to alcohol, not to, not to uh, uh, certain, you know, meds, not to television, not even to Ben and Jerry's. No, don't go there. <laughs> Look, if you're going to self-medicate, like, because you know you're broken, what you need is the fullness of... Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 5.18. It's really powerful, right? So like we're surrendering to an outside force. And, and what that means is if I surrender, it means now I'm stepping out of one river into an entirely different river, and now I am going to be carried along to places I would never have gone before. 
And that's what happens when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, right? They're carried to places they had never gone before. I, I, was, um, I, was, I grew up Christian, grew up here, really, and, you know, signed a card, got baptized when I was 12, all good stuff. When I was seven, my dad was my best friend. When I was 17, grew up in Fresno, my, my, um, come home from a high school uh, football game, my mom says, your dad's in a coma. He's not going to live through the night. If you want to see him, go now. Say goodbye. This, that's changed me. So I spent my senior year without a father. He died in October. And uh, I kind of took a vacation from God, actually. I was like, well, you know, I don't like a God who lets this happen. I, I just don't. I, I, and so I kind of lived, went off and lived my life. And I decided I was going to be an architect and make buildings because who knows when you're dead and at least something will still be there when you're gone. So I applied to Cal Poly and by some miracle got in. And so I'm you know, studying architecture at Cal Poly and taking vacation from God and I'm depressed and I'm lonely and I'm anxious and my health isn't very good. But I'm going to be an architect. And then, um, you know, I sit down in the dining hall like the third day. School hadn't even started yet. It's orientation. I sit down, and there's this cute girl across the way at the table. She bows her head to pray. So Christian pickup strategy 103, <laughs> you know, wait a little while and then bow your head. And then when she opens her eyes, your eyes are closed. And then she says, we all know, oh, you're a Christian. And I'm like this. If you are, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> And, and then, you know, we talked with him. She says, oh, what dorm? Oh, Sierra Madre. Oh, me too. Oh, fantastic. Hey, let's go to the dorm. And so, you know, we walk back over there. She says, hey, I want to introduce you to my boyfriend. So that was quickly uh, dashed, right? But um, she introduced me to this guy, Jim, big football playing guy from Pasadena, also an architecture student. And uh, Cindy says, Jim, this is Richard. Richard, this, you know, and uh, Richard's a Christian. Jim goes, really? And this guy's like, oh, he lives life at 150 decibels all the time, right? <laughs> really? And he's got this big red beard, big red afro. He bear hugs me, picks me up like this, <laughs> sets me down. He goes, you know, God's going to do great things in his dorm this year, and God's going to use you. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? He says, uh, I've heard you play piano. You're, you're going to play piano for a Bible study on Sunday nights. I, he didn't ask. He said, like, <laughs> declarative. You are going to play. Oh, whatever. I got nothing to do. I started playing piano for a Bible study. I don't even know what I believe. And I play, play piano. So what happens? Well, like, there's eight of us. It's still Bible study. And then there's, over the course of a year at Cal Poly, there's eight, there's 10, there's 25, there's 50. There's 80. We go down to Pismo Beach and baptize people two dozen at a time. It's not, it's not inter varsity. It's not Campus Crusade. It's just a bunch of college students who don't have any idea what they're doing. And most of them love Jesus, but I'm not sure I do. I just play piano. And God changed my life in that setting. This is, this is what I love about this Ezekiel passage. God doesn't say, stand up and then wait. God says, stand up, and then before he even stands up, 
boom, you will play piano. You will love me. Like God's chasing you, friends. I mean, I love that. So at the end of that year, I changed major. I became a music major. Clearly, I'm going to become a music pastor until the cymbals fell over, right? <laughs> and then I, you know, then I went to, to um, seminary down at, down at Talbot Seminary down in, with a long-term goal of actually being a teacher at a Christian school. And then I tell people, God tricked me into becoming a pastor. I went up to become a pastor for six months, and that was 37 years ago that that happened, right? Six months. 37 years. Why do I tell you all this? Because of John 3. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we all know this. Uh, uh, Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. That's John 3 and Nicodemus. There's a story there about this guy. Uh, But the thing that often we don't pay attention to is what it means to be born again. Because what does Jesus say it means? This is what Jesus says. You've got to be born of water and what? The Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Jesus told us. This is, what, this is what he said. Hey, the wind blows wherever it wants. And you know when? You know where? You know how. Right? One year, you guys are on fire. The next year, you're skiing on the 4th of July. You, you, don't, you don't plan that. That's the wind, man, does that. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so if you're, listen, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, your life is no longer your own. Like you're open to that wind blowing you wherever the wind wants to blow you. So the wind wants to blow you to San Luis so you can meet a whacked redhead who's going to make you play piano so you get your faith back so that he can send you then to Seattle and then send you back to LA again and then send you to Fresno again and then back to Seattle again and then live on an island for two years. Look, that's God's pride. You don't don't write your own story. If you do, it's a lousy, boring story. But if it's God's story, it's a good story. But the only way it's God's story is if we let the wind, you know, take us where the wind is blowing. And many of us, like the wind is blowing, we're like this, no, I will not move. That's a problem. <laughs> so I need, the, I need the spirit. But then attendant to that, I need to turn to the spirit, be filled with the spirit. Second, then I need to turn to courage. I need to turn to courage. It says in... Uh, Ezekiel 2, listen, I'm going to send you to Israel. You're going to offer interpretation for this disruption and dissonance. And uh, verse 5, whether they hear or refuse to hear, they will know a prophet's been among you. But as for you, Ezekiel, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed when they reject you. Just have courage right? So I'm going to be filled with the Spirit and walk in God's story. I'm going to need courage. And courage kind of presupposes a little bit of fear. It's okay. But I need courage. So let's talk about this. Ezekiel's calling is going to be to offer interpretation and exhortation, ultimately hope to the people. Interpretation is kind of the why behind all the losses of freedom and national identity, all the dissonance and, and, and uh, destruction that's gone on. So that's interpretation. Exhortation, all prophets invite people to turn away from idols toward God. And that's for us, Wednesday night, turn away from idols, Thursday toward God. And then, and then uh, they offer hope, right? But here's the problem. Speaking in this way, like when you're, when you're trying to expose idols, uh, 
you're challenging the prevailing values of a culture. Uh, let me tell you something. That, people let you talk about anything as long as you don't mess with their idols, right? So you, listen, you can, you, can, you can talk about prayer and you can talk about, uh, like, like I, I, just, I say this interestingly, everybody wants to have a conversation about same-sex marriage. We all want to talk about this beautiful, like an important discussion in the church. Hey, what's your church's stance on that? I hear that every week, once, twice, four times a week. What do you believe about that particular issue? No, in 20 years at this church in Seattle, no one has ever asked me this question. What's, uh, what's your opinion, Richard, on uh, materialism? No one's asked that question. Like, that's a given, isn't it? Like, hey, upward mobility and a merit, meritocracy whereby, we, you know, we, it's our stuff, we earned it, we keep it just to, you know, don't get in debt, but get as much as you want. As long as we don't mess with certain idols, everybody loves you. But as soon as you talk about some particular idols, what he's saying here is people are going to get angry. So Bonhoeffer comes along, go back to Germany, and he starts talking about the danger kind of the idol of nationalism. Uh, here's one response. The time is fulfilled for the German people because of Hitler. It is because of Hitler that Christ, God the helper and redeemer, has become effective among us. Hitler is the way of the spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter the church of Christ. Spoken by German pastor Hermann Gruner in a sermon in 1935. Another pastor put it more succinctly. Christ has come to us to bring renewal and revival through Adolf Hitler. So when Bonhoeffer stands up and speaks, do you understand what happens? Bam! He's immediately kind of cast out of the prevailing winds because everyone was in the river moving this way and, Hitler, uh, and, and Bonhoeffer stood up and he said, no, I, I'm not going that way. What does that require? That requires courage. Do you see? And so we, like, we need to see that all of us remember called to enter into this, this life of courage, and courage is going to take us places that we don't want to go. But we can go there because we have the Spirit. Uh, our church is in the middle of a very large conversation on race and justice, and we've been bringing in special speakers to do this for about a year and a half now. The first speaker who came in said, um, listen, here's a starting point in this discussion of race. Uh, find a friend of different color than you and go have a nice dinner together and listen to one other's story and just try and hear what it's like to be the other person. Can you just do that, right? Well, there's a guy who was there. He was at this, he was at this talk. And he was only there because his wife kind of nagged him to go. He didn't want to go, but he went anyway. But he was convicted by this because a coworker is black and he knows him by name, but he's never talked to him. So he, he went to him. I don't, know, I don't know if I recommend this, but this is what he did. He said, listen, I went to this talk at my church, and they told me I need a black friend, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just asking, can I, can I buy a dinner? Because I, re I really want to understand where you came from and what your life is like. I really, I, and, he, and he really did want to understand. And the guy graciously said, I'd, I'd love to spend time together. So they, they go sit in a restaurant, downtown Seattle, and they talk for two hours, man. 
By the end, this white guy's in tears. And uh, there's a powerful thing going on. And then uh, a guy comes from another table and he says, uh, hey, can I just say, like I'm a policeman off duty and everyone in Seattle needs to be doing what you guys are doing. He says, what you're, well, I'm just, I've been eavesdropping for an hour and uh, <laughs> this is powerful. This is powerful. I, it, and then he said, how did this happen? He said, oh, so, so church, we believe that Jesus is calling people to break down barriers. Amen. Here, this is a policeman's response. I've never heard of that in church. Can I say that again? This is a policeman's response. Uh, hey, we're here to, Jesus wants us to break down barriers. Uh, oh, oh uh, what? I've I never heard that. Never heard that. Do you understand how desperately important it is that we collectively commit to reframing what the essence of the gospel is about, that Jesus came, Ephesians 2, man, he came to break down dividing walls. And so this is our calling, and yet people view the, the, the churches as building walls, inflaming hostilities, inflaming anger, inflaming tribalism. No! Got to be courage. You got to have courage. Got to have courage. So that's a thing. This, this, this courage has to be there. And then, here's the last thing. You have to turn to the truth and eat it. Now, this is a crazy story. I'm just going to read it. But listen to this. Uh, he says, um, uh, they, he took this scroll. God takes a scroll and hands it to Ezekiel, right? And he spreads it out before him, verse 10. And the scroll has writing on it, the front and the back. And on the, on the front were written the words, lamentations, mourning, and woe. Now, like, if you're like me, I like happy stuff and romantic comedies and that kind of thing. This is depressing. And then he says, eat this scroll. In other words, that's a euphemism saying what? Listen, Ezekiel, before you go out and do stuff, the truth that I'm going to reveal to you has to become your truth. It's not... It's not like disembodied truth, it's truth that has affected you. You have partaken of this truth. It has transformed you. Now you are sharing the reality, not just of your intellect, but your transformed life. Truth must be experienced before it's shared. And I will tell you, in a university town, one of the reasons that people are fleeing from the church who are younger than 25 and want nothing to do with the church is because they're sick of intellectual discourse divorced from actual living. What people are looking for is models who embody generosity and hope and reconciliation and breaking down of social divides. And if all we do is argue atonement theory and eschatology, who's in and who's out and who speaks in tongues, we've missed it, folks. Like, this is why people leave is because they're looking for reality and all we have are words. No. Don't just have words, eat the words. They must become you. Let me take you back to Eddie and her, and her, and her diary. She's, this is powerful, man. So she's, she's, uh, she's in Amsterdam. And just see if you can envision this. It's Thursday evening, the war began raging again outside my window. 
And I lay there watching it off in my bed. Bernard was playing a Bach record next door. And it sounded beautiful and powerful and glowing. But then suddenly, planes, bombs, machine guns, noisier than they'd been in a long time. And it went right beside the house. Windows were shattering around me. And suddenly it came to me again. There must be many houses all over the world right now which are collapsing each day under just such bombs as these. And yet, Bach plays gallantly on. And then, this is her conclusion in this moment. This is what she says. I see in this moment, and I'm paraphrasing now, I see the temptation to become afraid, to become bitter, to become withdrawn, to fight back. But no, this, and here's her conclusion. Don't you love this? She says, the rottenness that I see in others that I hate so much, that rottenness is in me too. And I really see no other, that's, no other solution than to first turn inward and root out all the rottenness in me. I no longer believe we can change anything in the world until we have first changed ourselves. Man, if I had a mic, I would drop it right there, right? <laughs> like it's no good telling other people to change. The change that preaches is the change of our lives, right? Yeah, life is beautiful, she says. And I value it anew at the end of every day. But you must be able to bear your sorrow, even if it seems to crush you. You have a strength that you don't know you have. Bear that, become strong, and bless others. Oh. The truth must be received and do its work in us because it, without that, it'll never be of any value to anybody else. And here's the thing. The prospect of receiving God's truth is honestly terrifying because what it does is it reveals in each of us just how far we are from God's ideal, and it undoes our world. It doesn't matter if you're on the political left or right, whether you're conservative or liberal, whether you're communist or capitalist, it really doesn't matter. You and I, all of us in the room, we need to come clean of our idols. We've got to come clean of our addictions, come clean about our disdain for the other, if the other's a Republican, if the other's a Democrat, if the other's a liberal, a conservative theologically. I need to face how empty my accumulation of wealth is because I'm revisiting generosity and service and community. I need to face my boredom, my fear, my shame, my body image, my unresolved bitterness toward my parents, my self-medication. I got to deal with my stuff, man. That's why I'm glad Nicole's here because she's going to do that all morning, right? <laughs> so here's the thing. We have to do that. But then, boy, I just love this. This is what it says. Here's a scroll. Lamentations, mourning, and war. Whoa. And then he eats it at verse 3 of chapter 3. I ate it, it, and it was sweet as honey. Do you understand? Look, I did the hard thing. Lo and behold, it's exactly what I needed to do. And now on the far side of doing the hard thing, I'm a different person. I have a strength I didn't know I, have. I had. I have a joy. I have a capacity for generosity. I have a wisdom. I have a fullness of the spirit. I have a calling. Life is full now because what? I ate the scroll. I, I have to. The truth has to come and do its work in me. So there's a pattern here in Ezekiel with this we close. Order, disorder, reorder. It's a pattern. Shows up over and over again all through the Bible, but big time, that's the book of Ezekiel. Close by just telling you two stories, order, disorder, reorder. A very good friend of mine, highly successful lawyer in Seattle, uh, made his mark living in the suburbs. He didn't need anything. Doesn't need anything. Uh, and yet they climbed the top of this mountain of success, and they're like this. 
We've missed our calling. And they entered into real time of prayer and fasting. And they said, you know what we need to do? We need to, uh, we need to move back into the city. We're going to move back into Seattle. We're going to move uh, to within blocks of the University of Washington, which houses 40,000 of the brightest and best in America. Go Huskies. <laughs> we're going to move back. We're going to move back. We're going to move back by the U. And we're going to buy three houses. We're going to live in, because they made all this money. So we're, we're going to buy a house for girls and a house for guys and a house for us. And we're just going to disciple students. He, they did that in 1990. That's 29 years ago now. They moved back in the city. My friend's 70. He's kind of my mentor. I call him my Yoda. Um, he's, he's one of the most fulfilled people I've ever met. And uh, thousands of students have been transformed and mentored and sent out to serve and bless our broken world because someone said it's not enough to live the American dream. I have to live my calling. Order, disorder, reorder. Last story. Preaching a while ago and uh, one of the things that we had people do was come forward and name something they've been hiding that they want to bring out into the light because the thesis was uh, until we bring stuff into the light, it's destroying us. But when we bring stuff into the light, it'll heal us, right? This guy who's one of the, by personality, one of the like, most jovial guys you'd ever meet, right? He, like immediately when the surgery's over, he comes forward just sobbing, like he can't even talk for a couple of minutes. I go, what's going on? He says, Richard, he said, uh, he said, you don't, you don't normally do stuff like this to me. I said, I'm not doing anything, man. What, what's going on here? He said, well, um, my fiance is back there waiting for me. But uh, though I'm engaged to, uh, to be married, uh, I've had a girlfriend here for the last six months. And I was, we were just going to keep going on the side. I was going to get married. And he's, he goes... I got to go out and tell my fiance that uh, I've been unfaithful before we even get started. And he just hugs me and cries. But he's going to go do the hard thing. You know what? That was 10 years ago. He married that woman who was angry, understandably, right? But then, you know, they, did, they put the wedding off and they got counseling and he broke off the thing and what do they do now? They mentor young married couples and engaged couples. Because their passion for covenant keeping is stronger than you'd ever find. Like you won't find it stronger anywhere. Why? Order, disorder, reorder. Like disorder. You know what? Lamentations, mourning, and woe. Go ahead, eat it right now. Eat it. No, no, I don't want to. That's broccoli. <laughs> I want a mudslide. Yeah, whatever. You need broccoli. Because on the far side of Lamentation, Morning, and Woe, what? Life. The, not just life, the life for which you created. A life of abundance and joy and hope and peace so that you become part of the solution in a world filled with problems. Don't you want that? That's kind of where we're going this week in Ezekiel. Let's pray. Father, give us the courage to hear you this week. I know we're here for vacation.
I didn't even want to preach this this week, but it was on your heart. So thank you for that. But I pray, Father, that we'd hear what you have to say to us. Because you've, been, you've given us so much. And we want to walk faithfully and let you do this heart surgery you need to do so that we can be people of hope in your world. And we'll thank you for the adventure that awaits us as we follow you. Pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you.